Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 25 I hope you all realise, said Henry Wimbush during dinner, that next Monday is bank holiday, and you'll all be expected to help in the fair. Heavens! cried Anne, the fair! I'd forgotten all about it. What a nightmare! Couldn't you put a stop to it, Uncle Henry? Mr. Wimbush sighed and shook his head. Alas, he said, I fear I cannot. I should have liked to put an end to it years ago, but the claims of charity are strong. It's not charity we want, Anne murmured rebelliously. It's justice. Besides, Mr. Wimbush went on, the fair has become an institution. Let me see, it must be twenty-two years since we started it. It was a modest affair then. Now he made a sweeping movement with his hand and was silent. It spoke highly for Mr. Wimbush's public spirit that he still continued to tolerate the fair. Beginning as a sort of glorified church bazaar, Crome's yearly charity fair had grown into a noisy thing of merry-go-rounds, coconut shies, and miscellaneous sideshows, a real genuine fair on the grand scale. It was the local St. Bartholomew and the people of all the neighbouring villages, with even a contingent from the county town, flocked into the park for their bank holiday amusement. The local hospital profited handsomely, and it was this fact alone which prevented Mr. Wimbush, to whom the fair was a cause of recurrent and never-diminishing agony, from putting a stop to the nuisance which yearly desecrated his park and garden. "'I've made all the arrangements already,' Henry Wimbush went on. "'Some of the larger marquees will be put up to-morrow. The swings and the merry-go-round arrive on Sunday.' "'So there's no escape,' said Anne, turning to the rest of the party. "'You'll all have to do something.' As a special favour, you're allowed to choose your slavery. My job is the tea-tent, as usual, Aunt Priscilla. My dear, said Mrs. Wimbush, interrupting her, I have more important things to think about than the fair. But you need have no doubt that I shall do my best when Monday comes to encourage the villagers. That's splendid, said Anne. Aunt Priscilla will encourage the villagers. What will you do, Mary? I won't do anything where I have to stand by and watch other people eat. Then you'll look after the children's sports. All right, Perry agreed. I'll look after the children's sports. And Mr. Scogan? Mr. Scogan reflected. May I be allowed to tell fortunes? he asked at last. I think I should be good at telling fortunes. But you can't tell fortunes in that costume. Can't I? Mr. Scogan surveyed himself. You'll have to be dressed up. Do you still persist? I'm ready to suffer all indignities. Good, said Anne and turned to Gombold. "'You must be our lightning artist,' she said. "'Your portrait for a shilling in five minutes.' "'It's a pity I'm not Ivor,' said Gombold, with a laugh. "'I could throw in a picture of their auras for an extra sixpence.' Mary flushed. "'Nothing is to be gained,' she said severely, "'by speaking with levity of serious subjects. "'And, after all, whatever your personal views may be, "'psychical research is a perfectly serious subject.' "'And what about Dennis?' Dennis made a deprecating gesture. I have no accomplishments, he said. I'll just be one of those men who wear a thing in their buttonholes and go about telling people which is the way to tea and not to walk on the grass. No, no, said Anne, that won't do. You must do something more than that. But what? All the good jobs are taken, and I can do nothing but lisp in numbers. Well, then, you must lisp, concluded Anne. You must write a poem for the occasion, an ode on bank holiday. We'll print it on Uncle Henry's press and sell it at Tuppence a copy. Sixpence, Dennis protested. It'll be worth sixpence. Anne shook her head. Tuppence, she repeated firmly. Nobody will pay more than tuppence. And now there's Jenny, said Mr. Wimbush. Jenny, he said, raising his voice. What will you do? Dennis thought of suggesting that she might draw caricatures at sixpence and execution, but decided it would be wiser to go on feigning ignorance of her talent. His mind reverted to the red notebook. Could it really be true that he looked like that? 
"'What I will do,' Jenny echoed, "'what I will do,' she frowned thoughtfully for a moment. Then her face brightened, and she smiled. "'When I was young,' she said, "'I learnt to play the drums.' "'The drums?' Jenny nodded, and in proof of her assertion, agitated her knife and fork like a pair of drumsticks over her plate. "'If there's any opportunity of playing the drums,' she began. "'But of course,' said Anne, "'there's any amount of opportunity. "'We'll put you down definitely for the drums. "'That's the lot,' she added. "'And a very good lot, too,' said Gumbold. "'I look forward to my bank holiday. "'It ought to be gay.' "'It ought, indeed,' Mr. Scogan assented. "'But you may rest assured that it won't be. "'No holiday is ever anything but a disappointment.' "'Come, come,' protested Gumbold. "'My holiday at Crome isn't being a disappointment.' "'Isn't it?' Anne turned an ingenuous mask towards him. "'No, it isn't,' he answered. "'I'm delighted to hear it. "'It's in the very nature of things,' Mr. Scogan went on. "'Our holidays can't help being disappointments. "'Reflect for a moment. "'What is a holiday? "'The ideal, the platonic holiday of holidays, "'is surely a complete and absolute change.' "'You agree with me in my definition?' Mr. Scogan glanced from face to face round the table. His sharp nose moved in a series of rapid jerks through all the points of the compass. There was no sign of dissent. He continued, "'A complete and absolute change. Very well. But isn't a complete and absolute change precisely the thing we can never have? Never, in the very nature of things?' Mr. Scogan once more looked rapidly about him. "'Of course it is. As ourselves, as specimens of Homo sapiens, as members of a society—' How can we hope to have anything like an absolute change? We are tied down by the frightful limitation of our human faculties, by the notions which society imposes on us through our fatal suggestibility, by our own personalities. For us, a complete holiday is out of the question. Some of us struggle manfully to take one, but we never succeed. If I may be allowed to express myself metaphorically, we never succeed in getting farther than South End. "'You're depressing,' said Anne. "'I mean to be,' Mr. Scogan replied, and, expanding the fingers of his right hand, he went on. "'Look at me, for example. What sort of a holiday can I take? In endowing me with passion and faculties, nature has been horribly niggardly. The full range of human potentialities is, in any case, distressingly limited. My range is a limitation within a limitation. Out of the ten octaves that make up the human instrument, I can compass perhaps two. Thus, while I may have a certain amount of intelligence, I have no aesthetic sense. While I possess the mathematical faculty, I am wholly without the religious emotions. While I am naturally addicted to venery, I have little ambition, and am not at all avaricious. Education has further limited my scope. Having been brought up in society, I am impregnated with its laws. Not only should I be afraid of taking a holiday from them, I should also feel it painful to try to do so. In a word, I have a conscience as well as a fear of jail. Yes, I know it by experience. How often have I tried to take holidays, to get away from myself, my own boring nature, my insufferable mental surroundings? Mr. Scogan sighed. But always without success, he added. Always without success. In my youth I was always striving, how hard, to feel religiously and aesthetically. Here, said I to myself, are two tremendously important and exciting emotions. Life would be richer, warmer, brighter, altogether more amusing, if I could feel them. I try to feel them. I read the works of the mystics. They seem to me nothing but the most deplorable claptrap. As indeed they always must to anyone who does not feel the same emotion as the authors felt when they were writing. For it is the emotion that matters. The written work is simply an attempt to express emotion, which is in itself inexpressible, in terms of intellect and logic. The mystic objectifies a rich feeling in the pit of the stomach into a cosmology. For other mystics that cosmology is a symbol of the rich feeling. For the unreligious it is a symbol of nothing, and so appears merely grotesque, a melancholy fact. But I divagate. Mr. Scogan checked himself. So much for the religious emotion. As for the aesthetic, I was at even greater pains to cultivate that. I have looked at all the right works of art in every part of Europe. There was a time when, I ventured to believe, I knew more about Taddeo di Pogabonzi, more about the cryptic Amico di Taddeo, even than Henry does. Today, I am happy to say, I have forgotten most of the knowledge I then so laboriously acquired. 
but without vanity I can assert that it was prodigious. I don't pretend, of course, to know anything about nigger sculpture or the later seventeenth century in Italy, but about all the periods that were fashionable before 1900 I am, or was, omniscient. Yes, I repeat it, omniscient. But did that fact make me any more appreciative of art in general? It did not. Confronted by a picture, of which I could tell you all the known and presumed history, the date when it was painted, the character of the painter, the influences that had gone to make it what it was, I felt none of that strange excitement and exultation which is, as I am informed by those who do feel it, the true aesthetic emotion. I felt nothing but a great weariness of spirit. Nevertheless, I must have gone on looking at pictures for ten years before I would honestly admit to myself that they merely bored me. Since then I have given up all attempts to take a holiday. I go on cultivating my old stale daily self in the resigned spirit with which a bank clerk performs from ten till six his daily task. A holiday? Indeed. I'm sorry for you, Gumbold, if you still look forward to having a holiday. Gumbold shrugged his shoulders. Perhaps, he said, my standards aren't as elevated as yours. But personally I found the war quite as thorough a holiday from all the ordinary decencies and sanities, all the common emotions and preoccupations, as I ever wanted to have. Yes, Mr. Scogan thoughtfully agreed, yes, the war was certainly something of a holiday. It was a step beyond South End. It was Western Supermare. It was almost Ilfracombe. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 26 a little canvas village of tents and booths had sprung up, just beyond the boundaries of the garden, in the green expanse of the park. A crowd thronged its streets, the men dressed mostly in black, holiday best, funeral best, the women in pale muslins. Here and there tricolour bunting hung inert. In the midst of the canvas town, scarlet and gold and crystal, the merry-go-round glittered in the sun. The balloon man walked among the crowd, and above his head, like a huge inverted bunch of many-coloured grapes, the balloons strained upwards. With a scythe-like motion the boatswings reaped the air, and from the funnel of the engine which worked the roundabout rose a thin, scarcely wavering column of black smoke. Dennis had climbed to the top of one of Sir Ferdinando's towers, and there, standing on the sun-baked leads, his elbows resting on the parapet, he surveyed the scene. The steam-organ sent up prodigious music, the clashing of the automatic cymbals beat out with inexorable precision the rhythm of piercingly sounded melodies. The harmonies were like a musical shattering of glass and brass. Far down in the bass the last trump was hugely blowing, and with such persistence, such resonance, that its alternate tonic and dominant detached themselves from the rest of the music and made a tune of their own, a loud, monotonous seesaw. Dennis leaned over the gulf of swirling noise. If he threw himself over the parapet, the noise would surely buoy him up, keeping him suspended, bobbing, as a fountain balances a ball on its breaking crest. Another fancy came to him, this time in metrical form. My soul is a thin white sheet of parchment, stretched over a bubbling cauldron. Bad, bad, but he liked the idea of something thin and distended being blown up from underneath. My soul is a thin tent of gut, or better, my soul is a pale, tenuous membrane. Hmm, that was pleasing, a thin, tenuous membrane. It had the right anatomical quality, tight-blown, quivering in the blast of noisy life. It was time for him to descend from the serene empyrean of words into the actual vortex. He went down slowly. My soul is a thin, tenuous membrane. On the terrace stood a knot of distinguished visitors. There was old Lord Molin, like a caricature of an English milord in a French comic paper, a long man with a long nose and long, drooping moustaches and long teeth of old ivory, and, lower down, absurdly, a short cover coat and below that long, long legs cased in pearly grey trousers, legs that bent unsteadily at the knee and gave a kind of sideways wobble as he walked. Beside him, 
Short and thick-set stood Mr. Calamay, the venerable conservative statesman, with a face like a Roman bust and short white hair. Young girls didn't much like going for motor-drives alone with Mr. Calamay, and of old Lord Molin one wondered why he wasn't living in a gilded exile on the island of Capri among the other distinguished persons who, for one reason or another, find it impossible to live in England. They were talking to Anne, laughing, the one profoundly, the other hootingly. A black silk balloon towing a black-and-white striped parachute proved to be old Mrs. Budge from the big house on the other side of the valley. She stood low on the ground, and the spikes of her black-and-white sunshade menaced the eyes of Priscilla Wimbush, who towered over her, a massive figure dressed in purple and topped with a queenly toque on which the nodding black plumes recalled the splendours of a first-class Parisian funeral. Dennis peeped at them discreetly from the window of the morning-room. His eyes were suddenly become innocent, childlike, unprejudiced. They seemed, these people, inconceivably fantastic. And yet they really existed, they functioned by themselves, they were conscious, they had minds. Moreover, he was like them. Could one believe it? But the evidence of the red notebook was conclusive. It would have been polite to go and say, how do you do? But at the moment Dennis did not want to talk, could not have talked. His soul was a tenuous, tremulous, pale membrane. He would keep its sensibility intact and virgin as long as he could. Cautiously he crept out by a side door and made his way down towards the park. His soul fluttered as he approached the noise and movement of the fair. He paused for a moment on the brink, then stepped in and was engulfed. Hundreds of people, each with his own private face, and all of them real, separate, and alive. The thought was disquieting. He paid tuppence and saw the tattooed woman. Tuppence more, the largest rat in the world. From the home of the rat he emerged just in time to see a hydrogen-filled balloon break loose for home. A child howled up after it. But calmly, a perfect sphere of flushed opal, it mounted, mounted. Dennis followed it with his eyes until it became lost in the blinding sunlight. If he could but send his soul to follow it. He sighed, stuck his steward's rosette in his buttonhole, and started to push his way, aimlessly but officially, through the crowd. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 27 Mr. Scogan had been accommodated in a little canvas hut. Dressed in a black skirt and a red bodice, with a yellow and red bandana handkerchief tied round his black wig, he looked sharp-nosed, brown and wrinkled, like the bohemian hag of Frith's Derby Day. A placard pinned to the curtain of the doorway announced the presence within the tent of Sisostris, the sorceress of Ecbatana. Seated at the table, Mr. Scogan received his clients in mysterious silence, indicating with a movement of the finger that they were to sit down opposite him and to extend their hands for his inspection. He then examined the palm that was presented him, using a magnifying glass and a pair of horn spectacles. He had a terrifying way of shaking his head, frowning and clicking with his tongue as he looked at the lines. Sometimes he would whisper, as though to himself, "'Terrible, terrible,' or "'God preserve us,' sketching out the sign of the cross as he uttered the words. The clients who came in laughing grew suddenly grave. They began to take the witch seriously. She was a formidable-looking woman. Could it be, was it possible, that there was something in this sort of thing after all? After all, they thought, as the hag shook her head over their hands, after all, and they waited with an uncomfortably beating heart for the oracle to speak. Mr. Scogan would suddenly look up and ask in a hoarse whisper some horrifying questions, such as, Have you ever been hit on the head with a hammer by a young man with red hair? When the answer was in the negative, which it could hardly fail to be, Mr. Scogan would nod several times, saying, I was afraid so. Everything is still to come, still to come, though it can't be very far off now. 
Sometimes, after a long examination, he would just whisper, "'Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise,' and refuse to divulge any details of a future too appalling to be envisaged without despair. Sesostris had a success of horror. People stood in a queue outside the witch's booth, waiting for the privilege of hearing sentence pronounced upon them. Dennis, in the course of his round, looked with curiosity at this crowd of suppliants before the shrine of the oracle. He had a great desire to see how Mr. Scogan played his part. The canvas booth was a rickety, ill-made structure. Between its walls and its sagging roof were long, gaping chinks and crannies. Dennis went to the tea-tent and borrowed a wooden bench and a small union jack. With these he hurried back to the booth of Sisostris. Setting down the bench at the back of the booth, he climbed up, and with a great air of busy efficiency began to tie the Union Jack to the top of one of the tent-poles. Through the crannies in the canvas he could see almost the whole of the interior of the tent. Mr. Scogan's bandana-covered head was just below him. His terrifying whispers came clearly up. Dennis looked and listened while the witch prophesied financial losses, death by apoplexy, destruction by air-raids in the next war. "'Is there going to be another war?' asked the old lady, to whom he had predicted this end. "'Very soon,' said Mr. Scogan, with an air of quiet confidence. The old lady was succeeded by a girl dressed in white muslin garnished with pink ribbons. She was wearing a broad hat so that Dennis could not see her face, but from her figure and the roundness of her bare arms he judged her young and pleasing. Mr. Scogan looked at her hand and then whispered, "'You are still virtuous.' The young lady giggled and exclaimed, "'Oh, law! "'But you will not remain so for long,' added Mr. Scogan sepulchrally. The young lady giggled again. "'Destiny, which interests itself in small things no less than in great, "'has announced the fact upon your hand.' Mr. Scogan took up the magnifying glass and began once more to examine the white palm. "'Very interesting,' he said as though to himself. "'Very interesting. It's as clear as day.' He was silent. "'What's clear?' asked the girl. "'I don't think I ought to tell you,' Mr. Scogan shook his head. The pendulous brass earrings which he had screwed on to his ears tinkled. "'Please, please!' she implored. The witch seemed to ignore her remark. Afterwards, it's not at all clear. The fates don't say whether you will settle down to married life and have four children, or whether you will try to go on the cinema and have none. They are only specific about this one rather crucial incident. What is it? What is it? Oh, do tell me. The white muslin figure leant eagerly forwards. Mr. Scogan sighed. Very well, he said. If you must know, you must know. "'But if anything untoward happens, you must blame your own curiosity. "'Listen, listen.' "'He lifted up a sharp, claw-nailed forefinger. "'This is what the fates have written. "'Next Sunday afternoon at six o'clock "'you will be sitting on the second stile "'on the footpath that leads from the church to the lower road. "'At that moment a man will appear walking along the footpath.' Mr. Scogan looked at her hand again, as though to refresh his memory of the details of the scene. "'A man,' he repeated, "'a small man with a sharp nose, not exactly good-looking nor precisely young, but fascinating.' He lingered hissingly over the ward. "'He will ask you, "'Can you tell me the way to paradise?' "'And you will answer, "'Yes, I will show you,' and walk with him down towards the little hazel copse. "'I—' cannot read what will happen after that. There was a silence. "'Is it really true?' asked White Muslin. The witch gave a shrug of the shoulders. "'I merely tell you what I read in your hand. Good afternoon. That will be sixpence. Yes, I have changed. Thank you. Good afternoon.' Dennis stepped down from the bench. Tied insecurely and crookedly to the tent-pole, the Union Jack hung limp on the windless air. "'If only I could do things like that,' he thought, as he carried the bench back to the tea-tent. Anne was sitting behind a long table, filling thick white cups from an urn. A neat pile of printed sheets lay before her on the table. Dennis took one of them and looked at it affectionately. It was his poem. They had printed five hundred copies, and very nice the quarto broadsheets looked. 
"'Have you sold many?' he asked, in a casual tone. Anne put her head on one side deprecatingly. "'Only three so far, I'm afraid, but I'm giving a free copy to everyone who spends more than a shilling on his tea. So in any case it's having a circulation.' Dennis made no reply, but walked slowly away. He looked at the broadsheet in his hand, and read the lines to himself relishingly as he walked along. This day of roundabouts and swings, struck weights, shied coconuts, tossed rings, switchbacks, Aunt Sally's, and all such small hijinks. But paper noses sniffed the artificial roses of round Venetian cheeks through half each carnival year, and masks might laugh at things the naked face for shame would blush at, laugh and think no blame. A holiday, but Galba showed elephants on an airy road. Jumbo trod the tightrope then, and, in the circus, armed men stabbed home for sport and died to break those dull imperatives that make a prison of every working day, where all must drudge and all obey. Sing holiday, you do not know how to be free. The Russian snow flowered with bright blood whose roses spread petals of fading, fading red that died into the snow again, into the virgin snow and men from all ancient bonds were freed. Old law, old custom, and old creed, old right and wrong there bled to death. The frozen air received their breath, the little smoke that died away, and round about them where they lay the snow bloomed roses. Blood was there, a red, gay flower, and only fair. Sing holiday, beneath the tree of innocence and liberty. Paper nose and red cockade dance with the magic shade, that makes them drunken, merry, and strong, to laugh and sing their ferial song, free, free, but echo answers faintly to the laughing dancers, free, and faintly laughs, and still within the hollows of the hill, faintlier laughs and whispers, free, fadingly, diminishingly, free, and laughter faints away, sing holiday, sing holiday. He folded the sheet carefully and put it in his pocket. The thing had its merits, oh, decidedly, decidedly, but how unpleasant the crowd smelt! He lit a cigarette. The smell of cows was preferable. He passed through the gate into the park wall, into the garden. The swimming-pool was a centre of noise and activity. Second heat in the young ladies' championship. It was the polite voice of Henry Wimbush. A crowd of sleek, seal-like figures in black bathing-dresses surrounded him. His grey bowler hat, smooth, round, and motionless in the midst of a moving sea, was an island of aristocratic calm. Holding his tortoiseshell-rimmed pince-nez an inch or two in front of his eyes, he read out names from a list. Miss Dolly Miles, Miss Rebecca Ballister, Miss Doris Gabell. Five young persons ranged themselves on the brink. From their seats of honour at the other end of the pool, old Lord Molin and Mr. Calamay looked on with eager interest. Henry Wimbush raised his hand. There was an expectant silence. When I say go, 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 he said. There was an almost simultaneous splash. Dennis pushed his way through the spectators. Somebody plucked him by the sleeve. He looked down. It was old Mrs. Budge. Delighted to see you again, Mr. Stone, she said in her rich, husky voice. She panted a little as she spoke, like a short-winded lapdog. It was Mrs. Budge who— having read in the Daily Mirror that the government needed peach-stones, what they needed them for she never knew, had made the collection of peach-stones her peculiar bit of wall-work. She had thirty-six peach-trees in her walled garden, as well as four hot-houses in which trees could be forced, so that she was able to eat peaches practically the whole year round. In 1916 she ate 4,200 peaches, and sent the stones to the government. In 1917 the military authorities called up three of her daughters, and what with this and the fact that it was a bad year for wall-fruit, she only managed to eat 2,900 peaches during that crucial period of the national destinies. In 1918 she did rather better, for between January the 1st and the date of the armistice she ate 3,300 peaches. Since the armistice she had relaxed her efforts. Now she did not eat more than two or three peaches a day, her constitution, she complained, had suffered, but it had suffered for a good cause. Dennis answered her greeting by a vague and polite noise. 
"'So nice to see the young people enjoying themselves,' Mrs. Budge went on. "'And the old people, too, for that matter. "'Look at old Lord Molin and dear Mr. Calamay. "'Isn't it delightful to see the way they enjoy themselves?' "'Dennis looked. "'He wasn't sure whether it was so very delightful after all. "'Why didn't they go and watch the sack races?' "'The two old gentlemen were engaged at the moment "'in congratulating the winner of the race. "'It seemed an act of supererogatory graciousness, "'for, after all, she had only won a heat.' "'Pretty little thing, isn't she?' said Mrs. Budge huskily, and panted two or three times. "'Yes,' Dennis nodded agreement. Sixteen, slender but nubile,' he said to himself, and laid up the phrase in his memory as a happy one. Old Mr. Calamay had put on his spectacles to congratulate the victor, and Lord Molin, leaning forward over his walking-stick, showed his long, ivory teeth, hungrily smiling. "'Capital performance, capital,' Mr. Calamay was saying in his deep voice. The victor wriggled with embarrassment. She stood with her hands behind her back, rubbing one foot nervously on the other. Her wet bathing-dress shone, a torso of black, polished marble. "'Very good indeed,' said Lord Molin. His voice seemed to come from just behind his teeth, a toothy voice. It was as though a dog should suddenly begin to speak. He smiled again. Mr. Calamay readjusted his spectacles. "'When I say go, go. Go. Splash!' The third heat had started. "'Do you know, I never could learn to swim,' said Mrs. Budge. "'Really?' "'But I used to be able to float.' Dennis imagined her floating up and down, up and down on a great green swell, a blown black bladder. No, that wasn't good. That wasn't good at all. A new winner was being congratulated. She was atrociously stubby and fat. The last one, long and harmoniously continuously curved from knee to breast, had been an eve by Cranach. But this, this one, was a bad Rubens. Go, go, go. Henry Wimbush's polite, level voice once more pronounced the formula. Another batch of young ladies dived in. Grown a little weary of sustaining a conversation with Mrs. Budge, Dennis conveniently remembered that his duties as a steward called him elsewhere. He pushed out through the lines of spectators and made his way along the path left clear behind them. He was thinking again that his soul was a pale, tenuous membrane, when he was startled by hearing a thin, sibilant voice speaking, apparently from just above his head, pronounce the single word, Disgusting. He looked up sharply. The path along which he was walking passed under the lee of a wall of clipped yew. Behind the hedge the ground sloped steeply up towards the foot of the terrace and the house. For one standing on the higher ground, it was easy to look over the dark barrier. Looking up, Dennis saw two heads overtopping the hedge immediately above him. He recognised the iron mask of Mr. Bodiam and the pale, colourless face of his wife. They were looking over his head, over the heads of the spectators, at the swimmers in the pond. Disgusting, Mrs. Bodiham repeated, hissing softly. The rector turned up his iron mask towards the solid cobalt of the sky. "'How long?' he said, as though to himself. "'How long?' He lowered his eyes again, and they fell on Dennis's upturned, curious face. There was an abrupt movement, and Mr. and Mrs. Bodiam popped out of sight behind the hedge. Dennis continued his promenade. He wandered past the merry-go-round, through the thronged streets of the canvas village, the membrane of his soul flapped tumultuously in the noise of the laughter. In a roped-off space beyond, Mary was directing the children's sports. Little creatures seethed around her, making a shrill, tinny clamour. Others clustered about the skirts and trousers of their parents. Mary's face was shining in the heat, and with an immense output of energy she started a three-legged race. Dennis looked on in admiration. "'You're wonderful,' he said, coming up behind her and touching her on the arm. "'I've never seen such energy.' She turned towards him a face, round, red, and honest as the setting sun. The golden bell of her hair swung silently as she moved her head and quivered to rest. "'Do you know, Dennis,' she said in a low, serious voice, gasping a little as she spoke, "'do you know that there's a woman here who has had three children in thirty-one months?' "'Really?' said Dennis, making rapid mental calculations. "'It's appalling. I've been telling her about the Malthusian League. One really ought—' But a sudden violent renewal of the metallic yelling 
announced the fact that somebody had won the race. Mary became once more the centre of a dangerous vortex. It was time, Dennis thought, to move on. He might be asked to do something if he stayed too long. He turned back towards the canvas village. The thought of tea was making itself insistent in his mind. Tea, tea, tea. But the tea-tent was horribly thronged. Anne, with an unusual expression of grimness on her flushed face, was furiously working the handle of the urn. The brown liquid spurted incessantly into the proffered cups. Portentous in the farther corner of the tent, Priscilla, in her royal toque, was encouraging the villagers. In a momentary lull, Dennis could hear her deep, jovial laughter and her manly voice. Clearly, he told himself, this was no place for one who wanted tea. He stood irresolute at the entrance of the tent. A beautiful thought suddenly came to him. If he went back to the house, went unobtrusively, without being observed, if he tiptoed into the dining-room, and noiselessly opened the little doors of the sideboard, ah, then, in the cool recess within, he would find bottles and a siphon, a bottle of crystal gin and a quart of soda-water, and then for the cups that inebriate as well as cheer. A minute later he was walking briskly up the shady yew-tree walk. Within the house it was deliciously quiet and cool. Carrying his well-filled tumbler with care, he went into the library. There, the glass on the corner of the table beside him, he settled into a chair with a volume of Saint-Beuve. There was nothing, he found, like a causerie du lundi, for settling and soothing the troubled spirits. That tenuous membrane of his had been too rudely buffeted by the afternoon's emotions. It required a rest. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org, by Martin Clifton. Chapter 28 Towards sunset the fair itself became quiescent. It was the hour for the dancing to begin. At one side of the village of tents a space had been roped off, acetylene lamps hung round it on posts, casting a piercing white light. In one corner sat the band, and, obedient to its scraping and blowing, Two or three hundred dancers tramped across the dry ground, wearing away the grass with their booted feet. Round this patch of all but daylight, alive with motion and noise, the night seemed preternaturally dark. Bars of light reached out into it, and every now and then a lonely figure, or a couple of lovers, interlaced, would cross the bright shaft, flashing for a moment into visible existence, to disappear again as quickly and surprisingly as they had come. Dennis stood by the entrance of the enclosure, watching the swaying, shuffling crowd. The slow vortex brought the couples round and round again before him, as though he were passing them in review. There was Priscilla, still wearing her queenly toque, still encouraging the villagers, this time by dancing with one of the tenant-farmers. There was Lord Molin, who had stayed on to the disorganised Passoverish meal that took the place of dinner on this festal day. He one-stepped shamblingly, his bent knees more precariously wobbly than ever, with a terrified beauty. Mr. Scogan trotted around with another. Mary was in the embrace of a young farmer of heroic proportions. She was looking up at him, talking, as Dennis could see, very seriously. What about, he wondered, the Malthusian League, perhaps? Seated in the corner among the band, Jenny was performing wonders of virtuosity upon the drums. Her eyes shone, she smiled to herself. A whole subterranean life seemed to be expressing itself in those loud rat-tats, those long rolls and flourishes of drumming. Looking at her, Dennis ruefully remembered the red notebook. He wondered what sort of a figure he was cutting now. But the sight of Anne and Gombold swimming past, Anne with her eyes almost shut and sleeping, as it were, on the sustaining wings of movement and music, dissipated these preoccupations. Male and female created he them. There they were, Anne and Gombold, and a hundred couples more, all stepping harmoniously together to the old tune of male and female created he them. But Dennis sat apart. He alone lacked his complementary opposite. They were all coupled but he, all but he. Somebody touched him on the shoulder, and he looked up. It was Henry Wimbush. "'I never showed you our oaken drain-pipes,' he said. "'Some of the ones we dug up are lying quite close to here. "'Would you like to come and see them?' 
Dennis got up, and they walked off together into the darkness. The music grew fainter behind them. Some of the higher notes faded out altogether. Jenny's drumming and the steady sawing of the bass throbbed on, tuneless and meaningless in their ears. Henry Wimbush halted. Here we are, he said, and, taking an electric torch out of his pocket, he cast a dim beam over two or three blackened sections of tree trunks scooped out into the semblance of pipes, which were lying forlornly in a little depression in the ground. Very interesting, said Dennis, with a rather tepid enthusiasm. They sat down on the grass. A faint white glare rising from behind a belt of trees indicated the position of the dancing floor. The music was nothing but a muffled rhythmic pulse. I shall be glad, said Henry Wimbush, when this function comes at last to an end. I can believe it. I do not know how it is, Mr. Wimbush continued, but the spectacle of numbers of my fellow creatures in a state of agitation moves in me a certain weariness rather than any gaiety or excitement. The fact is, they don't very much interest me. They aren't in my line. You follow me? I could never take much interest, for example, in a collection of postage stamps. Primitives or seventeenth-century books, yes, they're my line. But stamps, no. I don't know anything about them. They're not my line. They don't interest me. They give me no emotion. It's rather the same with people, I'm afraid. I'm more at home with these pipes. He jerked his head sideways towards the hollowed logs. The trouble with the people and the events of the present is that you never know anything about them. What do I know of contemporary politics? Nothing. What do I know of the people I see around me? Nothing. What they think of me, or of anything else in the world, what they will do in five minutes' time, are things I just can't guess at. For all I know, you may suddenly jump up and try to murder me in a moment's time. Come, come, said Dennis. True, Mr. Wimbush continued, the little I know about your past is certainly reassuring. But I know nothing of your present, and neither you nor I know anything of your future. It's appalling. In living people, one is dealing with unknown and unknowable quantities. One can only hope to find out anything about them by a long series of the most disagreeable and boring human contacts, involving a terrible expense of time. It's the same with current events. How can I find out anything about them except by devoting years to the most exhausting first-hand study? involving once more an endless number of the most unpleasant contacts. No, give me the past. It doesn't change. It's all there in black and white, and you can get to know about it comfortably and decorously, and above all, privately, by reading. By reading, I know a great deal of Caesar Borgia, of St. Francis, of Dr. Johnson. A few weeks have made me thoroughly acquainted with these interesting characters, and I have been spared the tedious and revolting process of getting to know them by personal contact which I should have to do if they were living now. How gay and delightful life would be if one could get rid of all the human contacts. Perhaps, in the future, when machines have attained to a state of perfection, for I confess that I am, like Godwin and Shelley, a believer in perfectibility, the perfectibility of machinery, then, perhaps, it will be possible for those who, like myself, desire it, to live in a dignified seclusion, surrounded by the delicate attentions of silent and graceful machines, and entirely secure from any human intrusion. It's a beautiful thought. Beautiful, Dennis agreed. But what about the desirable human contacts, like love and friendship? The black silhouette against the darkness shook its head. The pleasures even of these contacts are much exaggerated, said the polite level voice. It seems to me doubtful whether they are equal to the pleasure of private reading and contemplation. Human contacts have been so highly valued in the past, only because reading was not a common accomplishment, and because books were scarce and difficult to reproduce. The world, you must remember, is only just becoming literate. As reading becomes more and more habitual and widespread, an ever-increasing number of people will discover that books will give them all the pleasures of social life, and none of its intolerable tedium. At present, People in search of pleasure naturally tend to congregate in large herds and to make a noise. In future, their natural tendency will be to seek solitude and quiet. The proper study of mankind is books. "'I sometimes think that it may be,' said Dennis. He was wondering if Anne and Gombold were still dancing together. "'Instead of which,' said Mr. Wimbush with a sigh, "'I must go and see if all is well on the dancing floor.' They got up and began to walk slowly towards the white glare. 
If all these people were dead, Henry Wimbush went on, this festivity would be extremely agreeable. Nothing would be pleasanter than to read in a well-written book of an open-air ball that took place a century ago. How charming, one would say, how pretty and how amusing. But when the ball takes place today, when one finds oneself involved in it, then one sees the thing in its true light. It turns out to be merely this. He waved his hand in the direction of the acetylene flares. In my youth, he went on after a pause, I found myself, quite fortuitously, involved in a series of the most phantasmagorical amorous intrigues. A novelist could have made his fortune out of them. And even if I were to tell you, in my bald style, the details of these adventures, you would be amazed at the romantic tale. But, I assure you, while they were happening, these romantic adventures, they seemed to me no more and no less exciting than any other incident of actual life. To climb by night up a rope ladder to a second-floor window in an old house in Toledo seemed to me, while I was actually performing this rather dangerous feat, an action as obvious, as much to be taken for granted as, how shall I put it, as quotidian as catching the 8.52 from Surbiton to go to business on a Monday morning. Adventures and romance only take on their adventurous and romantic qualities at second hand. Live them, and they are just a slice of life like the rest. In literature they become as charming as this dismal ball would be if we were celebrating its tercentenary. They had come to the entrance of the enclosure and stood there, blinking in the dazzling light. Ah, if only we were, Henry Wimbush added. Anne and Gombold were still dancing together. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 29 It was after ten o'clock. The dancers had already dispersed, and the last lights were being put out. Tomorrow the tents would be struck, the dismantled merry-go-round would be packed into wagons and carted away. An expanse of worn grass, a shabby brown patch in the wide green of the park, would be all that remained. Chrome Fair was over. By the edge of the pool two figures lingered. "'No, no, no,' Anne was saying in a breathless whisper, leaning backwards, turning her head from side to side in an effort to escape Gombold's kisses. "'No, please, no,' her raised voice had become imperative. Gombold relaxed his embrace a little. "'Why not?' he said. "'I will.' With a sudden effort, Anne freed herself. "'You won't,' she retorted. "'You've tried to take the most unfair advantage of me.' "'Unfair advantage?' echoed Gumbold, in genuine surprise. "'Yes, unfair advantage. You attack me after I've been dancing for two hours, while I'm still reeling drunk with the movement, when I've lost my head and when I've got no mind left but only a rhythmical body. It's as bad as making love to someone you've drugged or intoxicated.' Gumbold laughed angrily. "'Call me a white slaver and have done with it.' "'Luckily,' Anne said, "'I am now completely sobered, "'and if you try and kiss me again, I shall box your ears. "'Shall we take a few turns round the pool?' she added. "'The night is delicious.' "'For answer, Gombold made an irritated noise. "'They paced off slowly, side by side. "'What I like about the painting of Degas,' "'Anne began in her most detached and conversational tone. "'Oh, damn Degas!' Gombold was almost shouting. From where he stood, leaning in an attitude of despair against the parapet of the terrace, Dennis had seen them, the two pale figures in a patch of moonlight, far down by the pool's edge. He had seen the beginning of what promised to be an endless passionate embracement, and at the sight he had fled. It was too much. He couldn't stand it. In another moment, he felt, he would have burst into irrepressible tears. Dashing blindly into the house, he almost ran into Mr. Scogan, who was walking up and down the hall, smoking a final pipe. "'Hello,' said Mr. Scogan, catching him by the arm. Dazed and hardly conscious of what he was doing or where he was, Dennis stood there for a moment like a somnambulist. "'What's the matter?' Mr. Scogan went on. "'You look disturbed, distressed, depressed.' Dennis shook his head without replying. "'Worried about the cosmos, eh?' Mr. Scogan patted him on the arm. "'I know the feeling,' he said. "'It's a most distressing symptom. "'What's the point of it all? "'All is vanity. "'What's the good of continuing to function 
if one's doomed to be snuffed out at last along with everything else. Yes, yes, I know exactly how you feel. It's most distressing if one allows oneself to be distressed. But then why allow oneself to be distressed? After all, we all know that there's no ultimate point. But what difference does that make? At this point the somnambulist suddenly woke up. What, he said, blinking and frowning at his interlocutor? What? Then, breaking away, he dashed up the stairs, two steps at a time. Mr. Scogan ran to the foot of the stairs and called up after him. It makes no difference, none whatever. Life is gay all the same. Always, under whatever circumstances, under whatever circumstances, he added, raising his voice to a shout. But Dennis was already far out of hearing, and, even if he had not been, his mind to-night was proof against all the consolations of philosophy. Mr. Scogan replaced his pipe between his teeth and resumed his meditative pacing. Under any circumstances, he repeated himself. It was ungrammatical to begin with. Was it true? And is life really its own reward? he wondered. When his pipe had burned itself to its stinking conclusion, he took a drink of gin and went to bed. In ten minutes he was deeply, innocently asleep. Dennis had mechanically undressed, and, clad in those flowered silk pyjamas of which he was so justly proud, was lying face downwards on his bed. Time passed. When at last he looked up, the candle which he had left alight at his bedside had burned down almost to the socket. He looked at his watch. It was nearly half-past one. His head ached, his dry, sleepless eyes felt as though they had been bruised from behind and the blood was beating within his ears a loud arterial drum. He got up, opened the door, tiptoed noiselessly along the passage, and began to mount the stairs toward the higher floors. Arrived at the servants' quarters under the roof, he hesitated, then, turning to the right, he opened a little door at the end of the corridor. Within was a pitch-dark, cupboard-like box-room, hot, stuffy, and smelling of dust and old leather. He advanced cautiously into the blackness, groping with his hands. It was from this den that the ladder went up to the leads of the western tower. He found the ladder and set his feet on the rungs. Noiselessly he lifted the trap-door above his head. The moonlight sky was over him. He breathed the fresh, cool air of the night. In a moment he was standing on the leads, gazing out over the dim, colourless landscape, looking perpendicularly down at the terrace seventy feet below. Why had he climbed up to this high, desolate place? Was it to look at the moon? Was it to commit suicide? As yet he hardly knew. Death, the tears, came into his eyes when he thought of it. His misery assumed a certain solemnity. He was lifted up on the wings of a kind of exultation. It was a mood in which he might have done almost anything, however foolish. He advanced towards the farther parapet. The drop was sheer there and uninterrupted. A good leap, and perhaps one might clear the narrow terrace, and so crash down yet another thirty feet to the sun-baked ground below. He paused at the corner of the tower, looking now down into the shadowy gulf below, now up towards the rare stars and the waning moon. He made a gesture with his hand, muttered something, he could not afterwards remember what, but the fact that he had said it aloud gave the utterance a peculiarly terrible significance. Then he looked down once more into the depths. "'What are you doing, Dennis?' questioned a voice from somewhere very close to him. Dennis uttered a cry of frightened surprise, and very nearly went over the parapet in good earnest. His heart was beating terribly, and he was pale when, recovering himself, he turned round in the direction from which the voice had come. "'Are you ill?' In the profound shadow that slept under the eastern parapet of the tower, he saw something he had not previously noticed—an oblong shape. It was a mattress, and someone was lying on it. Since that first memorable night on the tower, Mary had slept out every evening. It was a sort of manifestation of fidelity. "'It gave me a fright,' she went on, to wake up and see you waving your arms and gibbering there. What on earth were you doing?' Dennis laughed melodramatically. What indeed, he said. If she hadn't woken up as she did, he would be lying in pieces at the bottom of the tower. He was certain of that now. You hadn't got designs on me, I hope, Mary inquired, jumping too rapidly to conclusions. I didn't know you were here, said Dennis, laughing more bitterly and artificially than before. What is the matter, Dennis? 
He sat down on the edge of the mattress, and for all reply went on laughing in the same frightful and improbable tone. An hour later he was reposing with his head on Mary's knees, and she, with an affectionate solicitude that was wholly maternal, was running her fingers through his tangled hair. He had told her everything, everything, his hopeless love, his jealousy, his despair, his suicide, as it were providentially averted by her interposition. He had solemnly promised never to think of self-destruction again, and now his soul was floating in a sad serenity. It was embalmed in the sympathy that Mary so generously poured. And it was not only in receiving sympathy that Dennis found serenity and even a kind of happiness, it was also in giving it. For, if he had told Mary everything about his miseries, Mary, reacting to these confidences, had told him in return everything, or very nearly everything, about her own. Poor Mary! He was very sorry for her. Still, she might have guessed that Ivor wasn't precisely a monument of constancy. Well, she concluded, one must put a good face on it. She wanted to cry, but she wouldn't allow herself to be weak. There was a silence. "'Do you think,' asked Dennis, hesitatingly, "'do you really think that she, that Gombold—' "'I'm sure of it,' Mary answered decisively. There was another long pause. "'I don't know what to do about it,' he said at last, utterly dejected. "'You had better go away,' advised Mary. "'It's the safest thing, and the most sensible. "'But I've arranged to stay here three weeks more. "'You must concoct an excuse. "'I suppose you're right.' "'I know I am,' said Mary, who was recovering all her firm self-possession. "'You can't go on like this, can you?' "'No, I can't go on like this,' he echoed. Immensely practical, Mary invented a plan of action. Startlingly, in the darkness, the church clock struck three. "'You must go to bed at once,' she said. "'I'd no idea it was so late.' Dennis, clambered down the ladder, cautiously descended the creaking stairs. His room was dark. The candle had long ago guttered to extinction. He got into bed and fell asleep almost at once. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 30 Dennis had been called, but in spite of the parted curtains he dropped off again into that drowsy, dozy state when sleep becomes a sensual pleasure almost consciously savoured. In this condition he might have remained for another hour if he had not been disturbed by a violent rapping at the door. "'Come in,' he mumbled, without opening his eyes. The latch clicked, a hand seized him by the shoulder, and he was rudely shaken. "'Get up, get up!' His eyelids blinked painfully apart, and he saw Mary standing over him, bright-faced and earnest. "'Get up,' she repeated. "'You must go and send the telegram. Don't you remember?' "'Oh, Lord!' he threw off the bedclothes. His tormentor retired. Dennis dressed as quickly as he could and ran up the road to the village post-office. Satisfaction glowed within him as he returned. He had sent a long telegram, which would, in a few hours, evoke an answer ordering him back to town at once on urgent business. It was an act performed, a decisive step taken— and he so rarely took decisive steps, he felt pleased with himself. It was with a whetted appetite that he came into breakfast. "'Good morning,' said Mr. Scogan. "'I hope you're better.' "'Better? You were rather worried about the cosmos last night.' Dennis tried to laugh away the impeachment. "'Was I?' he lightly asked. "'I wish,' said Mr. Scogan, "'that I had nothing worse to prey on my mind. I should be a happy man.' "'One is only happy in action,' Dennis enunciated, thinking of the telegram. He looked out of the window. Great, florid, baroque clouds floating high in the blue heaven. A wind stirred among the trees, and their shaken foliage twinkled and glittered like metal in the sun. Everything seemed marvellously beautiful. At the thought that he would soon be leaving all this beauty, he felt a momentary pang, but he comforted himself by recollecting how decisively he was acting. Action, he repeated aloud, and going over to the sideboard he helped himself to an agreeable mixture of bacon and fish. Breakfast over, Dennis repaired to the terrace, and, sitting there, raised the enormous bulwark of the times against the possible assaults of Mr. Scogan, who showed an unappeased desire to go on talking about the universe. Secure behind the crackling pages, he meditated. 
In the light of this brilliant morning, the emotions of last night seemed somehow rather remote. And what if he had seen them embracing in the moonlight? Perhaps it didn't mean much after all. And, even if it did, why shouldn't he stay? He felt strong enough to stay, strong enough to be aloof, disinterested, a mere friendly acquaintance. Even if he weren't strong enough— "'What time do you think the telegram will arrive?' asked Mary, suddenly, thrusting in upon him over the top of the paper. Dennis started guiltily. "'I don't know at all,' he said. "'I was only wondering,' said Mary, "'because there's a very good train at 3.27, and it would be nice if you could catch it, wouldn't it?' "'Awfully nice,' he agreed weakly. He felt as though he were making arrangements for his own funeral. "'Train leaves Waterloo, 3.27. No flowers.' Mary was gone. No, he was blowed if he had let himself be hurried down to the necropolis like this. He was blowed. The sight of Mr. Scogan looking out with a hungry expression from the drawing-room window made him precipitately hoist the times once more. For a long while he kept it hoisted. Lowering it at last to take another cautious peep at his surroundings, he found himself, with what astonishment, confronted by Anne's faint, amused, malicious smile. She was standing before him, the woman who was a tree. The swaying grace of her movement arrested in a pose that seemed itself a movement. "'How long have you been standing there?' he asked, when he had done gaping at her. "'Oh, about half an hour, I suppose,' she said airily. "'You are so very deep in your paper. Head over ears. I didn't like to disturb you.' "'You look lovely this morning,' Dennis exclaimed. It was the first time he had ever had the courage to utter a personal remark of the kind. Anne held up her hand as though to ward off a blow. "'Don't bludgeon me, please.' She sat down on the bench beside him. He was a nice boy, she thought, quite charming, and Gombold's violent insistences were really becoming rather tiresome. "'Why don't you wear white trousers?' she asked. "'I like you so much in white trousers.' "'They're at the wash,' Dennis replied rather curtly. This white trouser business was all in the wrong spirit. He was just preparing a scheme to manoeuvre the conversation back to the proper path, when Mr. Scogan suddenly darted out of the house, crossed the terrace with clockwork rapidity, and came to a halt in front of the bench on which they were seated. To go on with our interesting conversation about the cosmos, he began, I become more and more convinced that the various parts of the concern are fundamentally discreet. But would you mind, Dennis, moving a shade to your right? He wedged himself between them on the bench. "'And if you would shift a few inches to the left, my dear Anne, thank you. Discreet, I think, was what I was saying.' "'You were,' said Anne. Dennis was speechless. They were taking their afternoon luncheon coffee in the library when the telegram arrived. Dennis blushed guiltily as he took the orange envelope from the salver and tore it open. "'Return at once. Urgent family business.' It was too ridiculous as if he had any family business. Wouldn't it be best just to crumple the thing and put it in his pocket without saying anything about it? He looked up. Mary's large blue china eyes were fixed upon him, seriously, penetratingly. He blushed more deeply than ever, hesitated in a horrible uncertainty. "'What's your telegram about?' Mary asked significantly. He lost his head. "'I'm afraid,' he mumbled, "'I'm afraid this means I shall have to go back to town at once.' He frowned at the telegram ferociously. "'But that's absurd, impossible!' cried Anne. She had been standing by the window talking to Gumbold, but at Dennis's words she came swaying across the room towards him. "'It's urgent,' he repeated desperately. "'But you've only been here such a short time,' Anne protested. "'I know,' he said, utterly miserable. "'Oh, if only she could understand women were supposed to have intuition!' "'If he must go, he must,' put in Mary firmly. "'Yes, I must.' He looked at the telegram again for inspiration. "'You see, it's urgent family business,' he explained. Priscilla got up from her chair in some excitement. "'I had a distinct presentiment of this last night,' she said. "'A distinct presentiment.' "'A mere coincidence, no doubt,' said Mary, brushing Mrs. Wimbush out of the conversation. "'There's a very good train at 3.27.' She looked at the clock on the mantelpiece. "'You'll have nice time to pack.' "'I'll order the motor at once.' Henry Wimbush rang the bell. The funeral was well under way. It was awful, awful. "'I'm wretched you should be going,' said Anne. Dennis turned towards her. She really did look wretched. 
He abandoned himself hopelessly, fantastically, to his destiny. This was what came of action, of doing something decisive. If only he had just let things drift, if only. "'I shall miss your conversation,' said Mr. Scogan. Mary looked at the clock again. "'I think perhaps you ought to go and pack,' she said. Obediently, Dennis left the room. Never again, he said to himself, never again would he do anything decisive. Camlet, West Bowlby, Nipswich for Timpany, Spavin Delaware, and then all the other stations, and then, finally, London. The thought of the journey appalled him. And what on earth was he going to do in London when he got there? He climbed wearily up the stairs. It was time for him to lay himself in his coffin. The car was at the door, the hearse. The whole party had assembled to see him go. Good-bye, good-bye. Mechanically he tapped the barometer that hung in the porch. The needle stirred perceptibly to the left. A sudden smile lighted up his lugubrious face. "'It sinks, and I am ready to depart,' he said, quoting Landor with an exquisite aptness. He looked quickly round from face to face. Nobody had noticed. He climbed into the hearse. End of recording.